Captain, we have them. We've established Transporter Lock, the Star Trek Discovery podcast. Join Ken and Sabriel each week as they explore strange new episodes, seek out new plots and new characters, and boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Welcome to Transporter Lock, episode number 85 for Saturday, December 4th, 2021. I'm your co-host, Chief Engineer Ken Gagney. I am Captain Sabriel Mastin, and that's no moon, it's a ship. Oh my gosh, right? <laughs> that's the same thing I thought of. I think it's what everybody thought of. <laughs> so this is the episode of Transporter Lock for... No, wait, we're gone. But before we get to that, Sabriel, I have a story for you. Yes, you do. You went to go to... What's the word? Uh, future historical site. That's right. Oh, that's a perfect way to put it. A future <laughs> historical site. So as you know, I'm a digital nomad, which means I am driving around the country, living wherever I want for months at a time. I'm currently in Missoula, Montana. And former guest of the show, Neil A. Beardsley, who joined us last season for Discovery episode There is a Tide. He and his wife are also digital nomads, and they happen to be in Billings, Montana right now, which is about six hours from here. So we hadn't seen each other in years, not since we've crossed paths in Costa Rica. And I said, let's meet up. We look at a map and what's halfway between us, but Bozeman, Montana, birthplace of the warp drive, where Zephram Cochran in Star Trek First Contact debuted it on the Phoenix. Uh, and so what, what did you see? Well, we met up halfway, and most of our time was actually spent at the American Computer and Robotics Museum. Uh, it is the country's oldest computer museum in operation since 1990. They have a variety of old uh, tablets, and by tablets, I mean like cuneiform, not iPads. Say, like, uh, like also, the, what was the old Apple one? What's it called, the Cunea? No. Touchpad? I'm not familiar. The Koala Touchpad? No, Apple had it. I uh, uh, maybe it the Newton. I was, maybe that's what I'm thinking of. I just remember reading it in uh, the 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 book on Steve Jobs about the old devices. There was a Newton. It was the first PDA. That's, that's what I'm thinking of. Yep. Sorry, uh, I didn't happen to see a Newton there, but they did have a variety of old Apple computers, uh, and we had a fun time hanging out there, uh, looking at some stuff that was very familiar to both of us because we're both big computer nerds. However. As far as I know, even though Paramount and the city of Bozeman, as far as I know, collaborated on a tourism video for First Contact earlier this year, there is nonetheless no statues or plaques or other memorials or tributes to the fact that Bozeman is the birthplace of Warp Drive. Hmm. Well, maybe it's kind of one of those things where it's like, well, this is predestination, and if we do it. and so Oh, like a, a temporal paradox. Right. Like we can't commemorate something that hasn't happened yet. Uh, That's possible. And so, uh, hypothesizing, throwing against, see what sticks. <laughs> but, then, but basically, try to force it to happen. You know, it feels weird when they're like, "Well, I've got this warp drive idea. I guess I got to move to Montana." Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so the the best we could do is we were hanging out, and as we parted ways at the end of the day, we recreated the moment of first contact where I played the Vulcan <laughs> and Neil played Zephram Cochran, Wait. and we got it on video. Um, please, maybe, maybe no spoilers, but like, did you do the first contact version or the, the <laughs> Enterprise Mirror Universe first contact version? 
<laughs> I mean, there are a lot of hunters here in Montana, but neither Neil nor I identify as such, unless it's for vaccines earlier this year. So, no, it was not the Mirror Universe version. Thank goodness. I hope that's the version. We, I hope the not Mirror Universe version is what we get in 50 years. Uh, I could have put it this way. Let's just years. say N- Neil and I will cross paths again. <laughs> uh friend of the show, Char, and I also have plans. I'm guessing lots of truckies have plans to go to Bozeman, Montana in 2063 if we're still alive. Yes. Well, I certainly plan on being there. I won't even be 100 yet. I'll be a young spry chicken still. (laughs) So we'll see. I will see you there for sure. And I'm sure Neil will be invited as well. Cool. All right. They take hotel reservations 40 years in advance. Well, you know, like in both Back to the Future and in the TV series Timeless, you can put ads in the newspaper or send letters. I was thinking, and I, I was thinking the letters thing too. It's like that that letter's been on our desk for seventy two years or whatever it was. Right? Yeah, there was there was an episode of Timeless where he tried to do the same thing. He went to a courier service and said, "I need this letter delivered forty years from now." And somebody said to him, "Do you really think that's going to work?" And he shrugged. And he's like, "I don't know. It worked in Back to the Future." <laughs> Amazing. Uh, in the in the TV show, it did not work. <laughs> anyway, so we are here primarily to discuss Discovery Season 4, Episode 3, Choose to Live, which featured not one, not two, but three subplots. There was the Coat Malat subplot, which you might say was the primary plot. There was the Stamets and Booker go to Navarre plot. And there was the... Adira and Gray working on getting a new body plot. Where would you like to start, Bree? Oh, there's a fourth one in there. A fourth one? What? Tilly. Yeah, I consider that a a a, a sub sub plot of the Coat Malat plot. Let's go with the big one, the Coat Malat. Okay. In that case, I have to start by saying I hated this subplot. Really? Uh, what makes you feel that way? Well, let's start on a positive note. I can tell that you're going to disagree with me. So let's start with something that we like. Wow, ahead. that's a big assumption. <laughs> Did you like this plot? I asked the question first. Okay. I just found it. Uh, I mean, okay. Cool tie-in with Picard. I actually didn't recognize the line choose to live in the cold open. I should have. Uh, it was, But it was neat to have that tie-in. Uh, swordplay is always welcome, and uh, it was a great bonding opportunity for Burnham and her mom. And we can go into more detail about any of those. But I got to say, what I found uh, unlikable was just how unbelievable it was. I felt that Javini was she she did not act logically, and I understand that that's not necessarily inherent to their people, their creed. But there were so many better ways to solve this problem. And I don't think she even correctly identified what the problem was on multiple levels. And it just led to a lot of subterfuge and pain and suffering and death that was entirely unnecessary. Uh, I can totally see those points. Um, Tavini was Romulan, not Vulcan. And so I don't know how much has transpired in the hundreds of years since, how much of the Vulcan, um, I'm not trying to trying to tamper, temper, temper your emotions is there. I could totally see like it was not logical. Tilly does talk about how, um, 
Well, because they're like, we could just ask. And Tilly's like, no, the Federation would have not to know why. And also, but then that to me, that's like, well, the Federation would love to help. Um, (laughs) But um, it did feel like one of the weaker parts of the driving forces to get our characters to interact with each other and to show the bigger subplot of the Federation president being a politician. Um, yeah, I agree. I agree with Tilly's point. She makes a compelling argument that uh, the Federation might not have. Uh, once this information was released to a large body, the wrong people might have found out. I can appreciate that, but that doesn't mean that Javini could not have told other Kowat Malat because, mm-hmm. I mean, they're a sisterhood and they should be able to rely on each other. Yep. Uh, you know, that's something we didn't really get to explore. Like, why? Why? Didn't she do that? Well, I mean, I guess even um, Michael's mom said they hadn't heard from her for a few years. So she's been gone for a while doing whatever she's doing. And who knows, something may have, uh, you know, just warped her mind, warped her sensibilities. But also, like, how many times in our own lives have we convinced ourselves of one thing is the right path? Uh, it doesn't mean get right. Like, I think we might be forgetting some lot stuff from Picard. It's like this is her journey alone, basically. Doesn't mean you always sh- make the most logical decisions. I mean, how many times, like, I wish I could logic myself out of depression or, you know, thoughts that make no sense, but you just can't when you get something on there. But that also feels like it does feel like the weaker part of this episode. I'm not going to like disagree there. <laughs> Like even when Elnor took up Picard's cause, that was not a secret to the rest of the Kowat Malat. Like they, the entire sisterhood knew that Picard arrived there looking for somebody to take up his cause. He also was still in contact with them. To to Vindy had been gone for a few years, so I don't know if it was intentionally a secret, but she sure didn't try to seek other, you know, internal help. So my other issues with that plot are. If the spatial anomaly is what she was reacting to, responding to, knowing that this was a threat, then she probably, like, she, I mean, you made a point that she'd been off the grid for years, but the spatial anomaly just became known to them, like, in the last few weeks. And so all these dilithium heists must have happened since then, if that is what she's using as her excuse to engage in this act of terrorism. Uh, I, you know what? This, this season of Discovery, we are getting some... They're small, but some time jumps that we're not used to at Discovery. <laughs> That's true. It's true. It's still, though. Uh, and, and also, if the spatial anomaly is the threat, then there are much larger populations to worry about than this cryogenically frozen race. And I'm not saying that that invalidates the risk that they are at and that they do need a representative but there are entire planets that may not be in the Federation and which have no idea that this threat is coming. So Discovery is very good, tends to be very good about what they put in their show and making it matter. Like even in season one when Harry Mudd was doing his little reset in time and trying to break into the Discovery to find out the secret, uh, there was a reason for it. And here... It almost makes you feel like there's a reason they brought this group of aliens who got here somehow a long time ago. It feels like it's going to be important for later in the season 
but we just don't know yet. Discovery loves to keep that, keep their cards close. Kind of like how the evolution of the Kelpians in season two tied into the season finale. Yeah. Hmm. And so I would say, don't forget this. Uh, you know, it happened. Uh, as we are wont to do with Star Trek, is usually, you know, one off and you're gone. Um, it may or may not become important, but Discovery tends to like to make it important. I'm glad you're distinguishing between Discovery and the rest of Star Trek, because again, I will bring back what happened to the sentient Enterprise from TNG. <laughs> well, see, that, that was also Discovery. brings me to the question. I saw a lot this week in discussions around this episode, and it was, this episode felt like Star Trek again. Like, this is a really Star Trek-y episode. And I'm like, I don't like hearing that anymore. I understand the, the, the idea being like, science problem is a thing. We science the heck out of it. We solve the heck out of it. And some side characters get some um, uh, some story. Uh, that's basically the Star Trek formula for decades. And Discovery has done away with that, more or less. And I don't know, people. I think just gotta, you just got to realize that Discovery is not those old Star Treks, for better or for worse. It's its own show. And it still is Star Trek, no matter what. Well, it reminds me of a meme I just saw of Bashir and Garak sitting on the promenade talking. And Bashir asks, so which of the treks are real trek? <laughs> and Garak says, my dear doctor, they're all treks. That was a great thing. <laughs> and then Bashir says, even the ones I don't like? And Garak says, especially, especially the, the ones, ones you don't like. Don't like. <laughs> It's true. You and I were talking last week about what a great job the second episode of this season did with interweaving character moments and action. And this episode this week had almost no action. Very, very little compared to what we've seen before mm-hmm. this season. Sword fights is both action. <laughs> yeah. And on one hand, keeping up that level of action is exhausting. But on the other hand, like... Okay, so this is relative. I'm not saying this was a bad episode, but I would say of the three so far, which is a small data set, I would say this is the weakest episode of this season. At least with regards to that, uh, it doesn't really advance much, does it? Or at least character-wise it did, but plot, season plot, it didn't seem to yet. And Cor- and I wonder if, if, if in the future... This episode will look different when we have more information. Because I, I kind of agree, but I also love the episode. <laughs> which is weird. Well, well, you bring up a good point, which is in such condensed seasons, and when you're always facing these existential threats, there isn't a lot of opportunity for character development. And so on one hand, like last week, we learned something devastating about this anomaly. And this week's episode wasn't about the anomaly at all, really. And I was really surprised by that. I thought they would continue to be on the heels of this thing wherever it's going. And instead, they kind of took the equivalent of going to the hollow suite to play baseball. <laughs> like, like, oh, there's this big existential threat. Let's go do something else for a while. So on one hand, this does give us the character development we've been longing for, which is hard to find when facing existential threats. On the other hand, last week, we learned that the two can coexist. Yeah. I mean, hmm. What did we learn about the anomaly? The 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 uh, uh, the DMA. Uh, yeah. Well, well be- before we go yeah. to the Stamets book 
uh, subplot. I, I have a few more things to say about the co-op a lot. Yeah. Uh, first of all, well, I guess this would be like fourth of all. Sorry. <laughs> uh, so her quest was to get more dilithium for this. It's not a moon. It's a ship. Well, I'm confused by that because this means that the race must have been spacefaring after the burn or else their moon would have blown up along with everything else that had dilithium in it. So they must have gotten dilithium sometime after the burn and yet still mm. only had enough to get exactly to where they were going. Uh, no, the ship had been there for a while and they had run out at some point. It, it was kind of hand waved a bit, but there was comments about how um, something went wrong and they were basically out completely of dilithium. And then I think the burn happened. Um, like I said, it was very hand wavy. But I got the impression the ship had been there for quite some time. Oh, I see. The reason they didn't blow up in the burn is because they had no dilithium. Right. Um, okay. And it, it, yeah. I thought dilithium was a renewable resource. I thought by the time of TNG, they'd found ways to keep dilithium running essentially indefinitely. You know, it's always been one of those plot things that's been... We'll add more details when we need it. Because, uh, like, you know, TOS is like, oh, the dilithium crystals are almost out, Captain. Uh, and by TNG, they just didn't really address it much. They, they would say, like, oh, the engine's down, the charges are down, whatever. But Voyager would even look for deuterium to process it or something like that. I don't remember the exact... Maybe it was deuterium, but probably some some technobabble. But um, it's apparently a resource that needs to be mined. I mean, but... Yeah, honestly, I mean, it's very much a... We just add details as the plot goes on, and... I don't know there's a good answer for you. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> usually usually there isn't. I'm thinking of the TNG episode Relic where Scotty pulls out the crystal and says, oh my gosh, your crystal's going to fracture. And the Forge is like, no, nowadays we have self-sealing stem bolts or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, two other things, at least, about Quatmalot, which was the, the action scene at the top of the turbo lift. Uh Two things that my expectations were not met, thankfully. One is I really thought somebody was going to fall off the edge because <laughs> there were no restraining barriers. And Tilly looked very nervous near the edge. And I really thought like she was going to fall. And then like Burnham would have to jump after her and somehow defy aerodynamics and catch up to her and use her transporter, kind of like in the 2009 Star Trek movie. I, I just didn't know what was going to happen. And that didn't happen. And also... When Javini put down her sword, because Gabriel said, your path is at an end. This I know this is out of character and unlikely and unrealistic, but for some reason, I thought Gabriel was going to pick up the sword and kill Javini. Like, your path is truly at an end. Wow. I thought that would be the wow. justice. And you, <laughs> I didn't want that to happen. I just, it's, it seemed like there was still some sort of shock or surprise waiting for us. And I was trying to figure out what could it be. And that's the only thing I could think of. You see, they made it kind of, to me, I didn't think it was going to happen, but they made it try to seem like Divini might stab um, Gabriel. After everything we went through in season two to save Burnham's mom, to lose her like that would be devastating. Uh -huh. But I mean, I didn't think that was actually going to happen, but the, the, mm -hmm. those kind of scenes usually end up like that. It's like, okay, mm -hmm. just getting stabbed. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> also, Javini's sword is curved, and I'm not a, a, a sword person but i think that usually means that the curved side is the edged side of the blade and as she was holding burnham's mom hostage 
the curved side was pointing away from her throat. Um. So the blunt side was at her throat, and I'm not sure she could have slit her throat that easily. Not that I, I don't know if that's what she was gonna do, but um, it sort of blunts the threat. Thought, I thought it was a straight weapon that Tavini had. It looks curved to oh. me. Uh, in any case, uh, no, mm-hmm. I would rewatch that again if I were you. <laughs> and I would rewatch it if I were you. I did. <laughs> um. All right. Well, we're just gonna go- we're gonna we're gonna we're, no. and it had, like, we're gonna cool Google this right now. Ruins on we're it, gonna... so I was like paying attention to that blade pretty closely. Do it right now. <laughs> we'll do it live. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it depends on the angle because the first image I pulled up is a is a uh, head-on shot, and it definitely looks straight. But I think you have to look at it from the side, and I, I will do that after this call. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's all I have to say about that subplot. We can move on. All right, well, well, you did mention that you thought Tilly was a sub-subplot to this part. Oh, that's we true. We can talk about that. There because, um, well, Saru is showing himself as first officer through and through here with lots of advice. Like, in past Star Trek's, there would always there was occasionally be those scenes, but there was those scenes where usually Picard would say, "What do you think?" and Riker would reply right away, and that was it. There wasn't a huge scene about it here. Saru and person he is talking to gets a whole scene where he gets to dish out his thoughts and advice, and it it was a nice way to slow down, but also set up the episode, and I liked that. But he's here. He's like, "Well, I know someone who's really trying to get out of her comfort zone. Uh, why don't you take her to your little sword fighting?" Fighting Root and Tootin adventure. I loved Burnham's response. Tilly has a long and impressive list of skills. Combat is at the bottom. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. But so true. Also, Tilly is like the perfect person to hang out with them because of the absolute candor. Tilly says things off the top of her head all the time and has no. Maybe it doesn't. I don't want to say no problem, but she does share what's on her mind a lot. <laughs> and like, she even had an interaction with her and um, uh, Vulcan, who got one line, or or was it a Romulan? Uh, the gal she was talking to. Tilly's just talking her ear off to this. Um, as I saw someone say, a nunja. I don't think I like that term, mm. but it's to the combat nun. Um, Tilly was talking her you're off and then the woman's like i you're worried you're <laughs> annoying me basically and it's like no you're not i yep. I, like, I like your enthusiasm or, or, or i'm not i'm not annoyed by your enthusiasm basically and i, I love that hmm However, I will say that the reason tilly was brought on this mission ostensibly was not due to her ability to fix the lithium drives but due to her personality and I don't feel that that actually contributed much to the mission in the end. I don't know. She was there between to calm down Michael and Gabrielle. Um, and, you know, she also uh, took her sweet time in fixing things just because she did quite a number on this. Sarah really did a number on this. Um, she was buying time. Uh, she, she knew the situation. Uh, I think she did. I think she did her her thing maybe not as standout and obvious in past ways but she did her thing i, I did like that her moisturizing her hands caused her to drop her sword <laughs> that was amazing but like 
she 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 called the situation down a few times. She okay. did her job. Oh, that reminds me though. I wish we had known what was actually wrong with their cryogenic chambers. Burnham says, like, oh, I found the problem. And I expected a follow-up sentence. And all it took was 15 minutes for her to fix. And Javini never thought of that. Anyway. Oh, is it Tav- I thought it was Tavini. Is it Javini? Uh, it's with a J, yeah. Oh, I thought it was with a T. It, it's, yes, it's a J. Well then. Yeah, I still feel weird about the holographic displays. All I can picture every single time is the actor just waving their hands in the air. Mm-hmm. And how inefficient this would be. Because your hands get tired when they're not... When you're holding them up like that, that's just, I mean, I suppose you, oh, you get used to, but no, I, I like their screens. We have monitors. I like that better. <laughs> yeah, well, at least they don't have to carry around all those different pads now. Oh, they just like wave that. their hands and there they get the data. Like that either. But mm, I'll bring it up at the end because I did write a note. Um, but yeah, they did really hand wave a lot of the, of the science goodness on the ship. And you know what? Maybe it's just we didn't need it. Maybe it really didn't matter. And they're like, we can trim the fat a bit on all the Star Trek techno babble that we're used to having. Like, I don't need to know about the combobulators and the gizmo dudes. <laughs> like, it's fun. We grew up with that. But was it was it necessary? You know, I started doing more editing, and I'm like trying to help writers trim the fat. And like, this is you don't need. You could say all this with one or two words, not six sentences. Um, maybe it's, we're seeing some of that. What we do need is combobulators. That is amazing. Oh, yeah. Did you just make that up? I mean, that's a word, but I did. I, I mean, yes. When you, when you get discombobulated, <laughs> yes, that is the opposite of being combobulated. But I, it never occurred to me that you might have an actual combobulator, which is discombobulated. <laughs> <sighs> amazing. All the things uh, I say off the top of my head. It's 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 gold, say real. It's all gold. <laughs> uh, th- this reminds me of one more thing about Quat Malat is when they boarded. Uh, shoot, I just had the page pulled up. Darn. Something uh, about the turbo encabulator. No. <laughs> when they boarded the USS Credence to steal the dilithium, Commander Patrick Fickett. Oh my gosh, he did not miss a beat. He immediately went on the offensive, kicking the crap out of these people. And I was so impressed for two reasons. One was he didn't seem at all surprised or stunned. Like he was able to react very quickly. We rarely see that level of reactivity in Starfleet, in my opinion. And second of all, I at first had to wonder whether he was an alien with super strength because he was amazing. But no, he was 100% human. I, I just, I, I have a lot of respect for the late Commander Fickett. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, one of the things I was going to talk about was the ship. Um, but yeah, that was, I like that scene a lot. I like that scene a lot. Uh, short version, I think, for the same reasons you did. Uh, he, he seemed to be a little knowledgeable in hand to hand combat, but not enough for co op a lot. None. Uh, no. <laughs> no. All right. Anything else to say about co op lot or Tilly? Um, I was thinking, uh, there was a scene in episode one with Saru talking to Sakal. Um, he, I bring this up because it came up when I was watching a clip from the ready room. It, it was no context around it other than Saru talking about Saru period and his, um, his little badge 
which is a really cool little thing you can go into later. But um, they played a clip of him talking to Sakal where, where Saru said, one cannot have all the lies one desires. A choice is always necessary. And that feels like we didn't know it at the time, but that was going to be how he's addressing or helping Tilly and maybe others on Discovery as he's come back. But it felt very, very poignant for Tilly. Like, we don't know exactly what she's going to come to realize when she's going through all this, but it feels like that's important. I really hope she doesn't find herself in the same place Burnham did at the beginning of season three, where she's reconsidering her role in Starfleet, because she is... I mean, I know she said in the first episode that Lieutenant used to seem so far away, and now she's here. There's a possibility it's not everything that she thought it would be, but I hope that wherever she does want to be is in Starfleet, and specifically on Discovery. I think it will. I think, and I could be misremembering what Tilly's full relationship with her mother was, and I did look it up, but I couldn't find an answer without rewatching the episode. But I know Tilly had a very strained relationship with her mother. Um, uh, but I, I think Tilly kind of did this, you know, wanted to be an officer to kind of show like, I can do this, F you, um, to her mother. But, and if that's true, if I am remembering that correctly, I was thinking she's now trying to find a path or she kind of realized that's not enough to push her on. And she's needs help finding the path to do this for herself. It's purely based on what I tr- think I remember from like season two. No, you're right. Her mom was critical of everything she did. I don't know if that was necessarily a motivator for Tilly or actually more something that held her back because there have been a lot of circumstances that have changed for Tilly in the past season or two, but especially everybody she practically ever knew or loved, including her mother, is now dead. And she is freed of that abuse. And that's, in a way, what it is. Yeah, and so... And so she's free to explore who she wants to be without that context. Yeah. I'm wondering if that's where this is going. But again, that's purely if I'm remembering correctly. I might not be. Well, I I certainly see some value in what you're saying. I used to sing in a men's choir. The director, Lewis, uh, had, in some ways, an adversarial relationship with the choir. Like we all respected the hell out of each other and we put on some great concerts uh, and, uh, but nonetheless, there was some amount of tension and then he retired and his successor, John, an equally talented musician also put on some wonderful concert concerts, but it felt more like we were a big, happy family. Mm-hmm. And that's not what I was used to. And I realized that the tension we had with Lewis was in some ways a motivator. We wanted to prove to him that we were as good as singers as he thought we weren't. (laughs) (laughs) And with John, I was like, there's no incentive for me to do that well because you already believe in me. So why should I? (laughs) some, Some people run on spite and some people don't. Yeah, and I certainly don't think I am a person who runs on spite, but I, it was just that that is what I was accustomed to. It was the only choir I'd ever sung, and Lewis had been the only choir director I'd ever had, so he set the precedent. And in that very specific context, it was what I was looking for after that many years. Mm-hmm. Shall I move to another plot? Uh, yeah, let's continue on. I chose first, so yes. uh, choose or choose to live. <laughs> choose to talk (laughs) which we do every week when we get on transporter lock 
let's go with the DMA since you brought that up. Uh, now I chose the topic. You choose what we're going to say about it. Well, I liked the Vulcan scene scenes a lot. Um, sure, maybe it actually is a black hole. Cool, whatever. Four out of five science point yeah, to black primordial, hole. Primordial wormhole. I've seen black hole. My mind is saying wormhole. Um, <laughs> so, like, I'm like, I'm saying the right thing. There's no way I'm saying the incorrect thing because I know what I'm talking about. No. Um, wormhole. Excuse me. Uh, four out of five things say wormhole. Vulcans are like, mm-mm. So, I'm first, I'm thinking, okay, Enterprise. The Vulcans are always like, <laughs> and the Romulans here in this case were like, mm-mm, you're wrong. Uh, like about time travel and all that. But <laughs> the Vulcan Science Institute uh, says time travel is an impossibility. Uh, the Vulcan Science Institute says that this is a wormhole. It's an impossibility. Um, if they stick with the worm, well, surface level, if they stick with the wormhole thing, that adds evidence to my hypothesis that it is some external force carving out a path to get here. Do I feel like that's still the case? In some degree, possibility. I don't have a percentage. That's surface level thoughts. Um, a little. What about, what about surface level? How about you? Did you enjoy this a little bit? Then we'll dig in. Well, I have two questions to what you just said. When you say somebody carving out a path, are you referring again to the Kelvin Empire? Kelvin's or external force? Yeah. Right. And second of all, if it is a primordial wormhole that is being created artificially, why would it matter? That it needs to change direction. I know that's weird. I mean, I got thinking the Barzan wormhole pops around, but like, why would it? Why would someone direct this to it? And so it feels kind of like a weapon in that regard. If it's if it's if it's a device, and not a being, it feels like a weapon of some kind. The Barzan wormhole being the one that stranded the two Ferengi in the uh, Delta Quadrant. Yes, but I meant uh, the primordial wormhole here feels like a weapon. Right, right. No. Barzan one just popped around wherever it wanted. On one side. Oh, right, right, right. I just want to make sure I was remembering the yeah, right one. You got it perfectly. I mean, also good for anyone listening. I just can't assume you know what I'm talking about. I don't know what half the time what I'm talking about. Um, uh, so, yeah. Um, I guess it could be like one end of a wormhole trying to play, stick itself in, you know, like, like make a post in the hole or on, in space and say, this is where I'm going to sit. I don't know. But it still feels like someone out there is causing this thing to like prepare for someone's arrival interesting that so when it finally stabilizes something will emerge i, I from a dramatic perspective i can see that happening yeah. if it's a wormhole i mean there's so many ifs we don't know i'm throwing things out there with not really believing one way or another i'm just trying to like, like stamets i'm trying to get like the evidence that points to what and seeing what sticks well you know a wormhole serves two purposes it moves somebody to somewhere they want to be but it also moves somebody from somewhere they don't want to be so maybe it's not just that they're trying to get into the alpha quadrant they're trying to emerge from somewhere else which now answers the question what does god need with a wormhole (laughs) and we also know from teasers this is a galactic threat but right now it's very small only five light years. Yeah, yeah, relative. It's all relative. Oh it's really, really big. You might think it's a long way to the chemist. <laughs> um, but but the uh, the Bajoran wormhole was so small, you had to have the precise coordinates to discover right. it. Uh, so it, it's shocking to me that this thing, which 
probably may not be a wormhole because it's only four out of five. But if it is, it would be so much easier to notice and detect. And, of course, so much more destructive. Uh Uh-huh. I mean, we have very limited scope of how many wormholes we've seen, so... There was that micro wormhole that Voyager found, which actually also went back into the past. Mm Mm-hmm. That was cool. I love that episode. Uh, I do love wormholes. I love a good wormhole. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, f- I feel like there now needs to be a, a Star Trek themed bar with that drink. You're like, oh, I love a good right. wormhole. But um, back to Navarre, that's surface level. I like that. That was, uh, I like Stamets trying to science the heck out of this. Um, and then his you know trouble coming to Navarre and like, all right, can we make make a plan, have a dinner, make a schedule? And the Vulcans are, go take a nap, as he said, he puts it. Um, right. I, this feels so much like a symposium where you're going to have these speakers at these hours. And as soon as it goes off track, Sam was like, excuse me, I, I had pamphlets printed. <laughs> I took a shuttlecraft and did not get kidnapped. And so something has to happen here. Uh, if you don't know, Star Trek. There's a very major problem on the travel to any conventions. You're going to get kidnapped, probably by the Romulans. Oh, that's true. That's true. <laughs> poor, poor Jordy. Every time. Uh, something dangerous happens. Picard, Jordy, uh, anyone who's going on a symposium is going to get kidnapped. But um, we got we got to see Book work through some things. And you were right on your prediction from the very first episode. <laughs> He's now wearing his necklace. He's wearing his little Quijon necklace. Yep. Um, uh. Was it just me, or did uh, Tarina, the, the, the Navarre president, seem really excited to do a mind meld? I don't... I, I liked her point about how Vulcans experience emotions. We've all known that to be true, but so many Vulcans deny it at all. And she seemed very empathetic, which I, I really appreciated. She saw suffering, and she saw the opportunity to help with it. And I mean, I know that her ostensible reason was to determine whether or not there are any tachyons, but she also took the opportunity to help book through some other stuff that he needed. And uh, it ended up being the opposite of painful. Yeah. You know, I was thinking while watching this, like they go back to this. Well, a lot of times someone with emotions needs to get through the emotion and they have to, Bounce off someone who effectively, you know, quote unquote, has no emotions. So they can, so the person who's having the trouble can feel their emotions again. They've gone to this well so many times. And I just eat it up each time. Cause like now, book is like, oh yeah, I can, I can feel, I can feel these feelings thanks to the person who has no feelings, quote unquote. Well, it's all, they've also done just the opposite. Like the time Sarek poured all his emotions into Picard. Uh-huh. I mean, yeah, but, but it wasn't. Picard saying, <laughs> "I have no feelings," but um, but they go through to the they go to this well a lot, and I don't know, I just eat it up each time, and because it's so good, it just makes you feel again, <laughs> like it's okay to feel. Um, and book here, um, I'm glad he's getting closure is not quite the right word. I mean, maybe it is, but he was we, we saw he was c- trying to cope with his nephew's death. <sighs> You know, I, I when his plant blew up and you and I reviewed the first episode, I said, I don't think, or rather, I said, I'm concerned that his relationship with Michael will not survive this trauma. And after this episode, I have a higher degree of confidence that their relationship is going to survive 
I mean, he still has more things to work through because he lost a lot more than just his nephew. But I feel like he's working on processing it in a healthy way. And that doesn't mean pushing away the people who love him like Culber did to Stamets in season two. Mm-hmm. I am so glad we're seeing like the season, a lot of healthy ways to work through things between Tilly talking to apparently off camera. It's clearly happened. More time has passed. He's, she's been talking to Culber. She's talking to Saru. We get book working through things. Uh, sure. He was like, st- you know, like pushing people away at first, but now he's allowing people in to help him a little bit. And mm-hmm. I mean, it really can help. It can really help when you have someone who you're not associated with at all. Don't have that connection to like when you get those people who are close to you, you don't want to talk to them. You, but you kind of find yourself talking to people who know nothing about you. And that happened here. And that can be really helpful in some case for some people, for some cases. And um, that seemed to be the trick here too. Yeah. I loved seeing Stamets also being empathetic. Like at first he said to book, Oh, you don't want to come. It's going to be a lot of math. It's going to be really boring. And finally he's like, look, I'm going to have to do a very clinical articulation of your trauma. And Book's like, I can handle it. And Stamets was like, no, you cannot mind meld. You cannot make him live through that trauma again. And I mean, Stamets loves science. He's the one who encouraged them to remain in the anomaly last week to get more data. And this week he was saying, no, this is data we don't need because it'll cause him too much emotional pain. Yeah. Oh, Stamets being like, don't make him go work through that because of my failing. Yeah. Oh. Oh, so good. You want to feel around yeah. all the Vulcans. <laughs> and also, brief aside, uh, you, you mentioned talking to somebody who doesn't know you that well. Saru came right out and said that Culber is both the chief's, chief medical officer and the ship's counselor. Yeah. Like, did, did, did we officially know that? I mean, I don't think it was said. It was just assumed. I, don't, I mean, yeah. we, we, we've seen him performing in that capacity, but I hadn't heard the title associated with it. So it was nice to get some confirmation that for the first time since Deanna Troy, we have a ship's counselor. <laughs> How very 80s. Uh, <laughs> I like it. How very necessary. Uh-huh. Well, that was one of those things people would say, like, oh, I can't believe it's a hotel in space. You got a counselor on your bridge. Oh, <laughs> yes, it's a hotel in space. <laughs> and we get a counselor on the bridge. Why not? Um. And then uh, anything else you want to say about Navarre? Only briefly that, so Navarre was originally Vulcan, but they renamed it to incorporate more of the remaining Romulan population. It still seems predominantly Vulcan. That makes sense. Like we, yeah. Does it? I mean, I guess it does because like I said, it used to be Vulcan, but I just feel like there would be, after 800 years, less distinction between Vulcan and Romulan, whether it's biology and race or whether it's philosophy but i i I thought 800 years from now they would just all have melded into one i think you are seeing it not realizing it you think those were romulans we saw there were some romulans there oh really Uh uh-huh in the scene with stamets and book yeah uh the way in in the science institute people yeah the way that they show the difference in discovery and picard is um forehead ridges but they're not strongly pronounced, but they're there. Huh. Okay. That is a detail I overlooked. And that, um, and that Tarina was even empathetic to me kind of shows more like that could be her as a Vulcan, but it could also signify 
the unification or the reunification, as it were, of um, hmm. uh, part three of <laughs> of Romulan and Vulcan um, society. Okay, well, thank you for pointing that out. Although, I'm sorry, this is a brief aside. Talking about things that should have changed in 800 years, uh, and going back to the USS Credence getting hijacked by the Quat Malat. 800 years, and we still haven't figured out how to transport things without dropping shields? Right? I was thinking the same thing. <sighs> okay, but, that's all. But, I'm you done. You know what? Even, remember, Vulcans live for a couple hundred years. It's only been, like, two generations since two or three generations. More or less, but that's one of the reasons. That's one of the reasons why Vulcans fear humans is because Vulcans had millennia of infighting before they finally reached the stars, uh-huh. and humans did it in centuries. Uh-huh. So that's what I'm saying. Like, don't expect too much change from Vulcans right away because they live for a very long time, and they're very but stubborn. That a, but that was a Starfleet vessel. They should know how to. Anyway, moving on. Oh no, I wasn't talking about the, the shield. That I makes was. No sense. <laughs> I was talking about Vulcan society still. Um, okay, that's fine. I think we are saying the same thing. We're uh-huh. in agreement. Okay. Shall we move on to the third? Oh, um, speaking of Culver and Saru talking about being ship's counselor, the USS Discovery has a fireplace uh, lounge. Yeah, I was going to save this for a little bit at the end, but yeah, the disco bar. Oh, I loved it. And I, at first I thought like, wait, I, I was questioning A, is that a holodeck? And B, are those real logs? <laughs> uh, no, it, it's, it's like those gas fire pits to see the restaurants these days. Yeah, I actually I'm looking at one right now here in my Airbnb. Um we got a fire pit, we got hollow darts, we got Linus at the piano in the background. You only see it for like a split second if you have to look. Um, I missed it. There's a bartender, like and I saw an Alurian, a Morin's pe- people uh in the background. I'm like so this is a place where people can drink and it's not just the mess hall. Oh. Oh, good point. Uh, huh. so I I was happy to see the disco bar. I, maybe this is like their version of 10 forward. Yeah. Huh. That's true because the mess hall doesn't really serve that purpose. I hadn't really thought about where do they go to relax. I think they would use that set. So, Cause they had, they use that set of oh, bring it up again on the Harry mud episode where he was going back in time. That's where Tilly was like getting hit on by Lieutenant Reese. They had that little party there and she was getting drunk and everyone was mm. dancing to club music in the mess hall. Yep. Yeah. Oh, that was the mess hall. Uh, I mean, maybe I Maybe in the schematics that uh, it wasn't actually, we do have a dance hall, but uh, uh, they, at least they redressed the mess hall set if it's not the mess hall. It was right next to the rubber duck room. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Shall we talk about the third and final subplot? Yeah, Gray and the reunification of his body. There's that word again, yes. The wait, wait, wait. Which, wait, the, wait, isn't it? It's my turn to choose the subplot, so I, I choose this one. We get to see this cool stuff that they invented for like DS9 or maybe even TNG a little bit, but DS9 like um, Trill, and they got to use their technology or their ways, not even tech really, to help with the mind transference because they've already done this before in Star Trek. And it's cool. Oh, you mean the episode where all of Jadzia's past hosts came out and inhabited other bodies? Yeah. I forgot about that. It was we, so we've seen this before, and we got to see it here, and it's just, and maybe it's not a one-to-one fit. We get to expand our lore a little bit, and we got to use it again, and it was cool. And it was a small part of the episode, but it was a big part for the heart. <laughs> I would have liked to have seen the unjoining. You were talking about editing and things getting cut uh, because it's not necessary. 
I, I felt that this subplot moved a little too quickly, not only in this episode, but also across the entire season. I thought it would be harder for Grey to get a body. Well, see, that means we get more time to, for Grey to adjust to it. And for Adira to adjust to it. You know, when uh, Culber and Grey hugged, one of my first thoughts was, neither of them is in their original body. You're right. <laughs> And I wonder if that is a uh, point of connection for them. Like Culber will help Gray adjust to not being in the original body. Yeah, in in uh, radio room. Um, this makes me. Th- Ian Alexander, I think it was Ian, and not Blue, who mentioned that. You know now, Azira will have to work through possibility of losing. Gray. Like yeah. Gray will go away. Uh, whether that happens or not, I don't, uh, the way they responded, I don't know, but, uh, there's a lot of things to work through now. And so I'm glad we get to explore more of that. Not like the Voyager problem where we got back home. Cool. Series over. I would have loved to see when they get home. And now here, they didn't save it for the end. So we can explore that throughout the season. And I'm actually appreciative of that, that we made it boom, boom, boom. Okay, go. Now you can talk about it. Well, what you just said about Gray possibly going away, uh, th- they said, Adira said that they will always be linked. No, actually, I think it was Gray that said that. Um, but this makes me think about real life analogs, like these news stories you occasionally see about how uh, this guy donated his kidney to his girlfriend, you know, who was dying of renal failure or whatever. And now I'm thinking to myself, Oh gosh, if they ever break up, that's going to be super awkward. Like I have your symbiont in me. <laughs> but but like like he saved her life. She literally has a part I'm again referring to the, the real life analog. She literally has a part of him inside her and like yes, it was given with no strings attached. There's that phrase again. But how how you, you can't repay that. And be, and you can't be like, "Well, thanks for the kidney. Bye now." And like, but we were dating. You owe me. Do you? And that, no, no, you don't. That's a very petty interpretation of it. I, I, that would be an unhealthy relationship where somebody actually says you owe me. Don't get me wrong. But subconsciously, I can totally see it being hard to let go of that. And like for, for Gray to now leave and Adir to say, like, I, I'm the one who guided you back to your body. And Gray be like, yeah, and I appreciate that. Bye. I mean, yeah. I mean, the sunk cost thing is a problem in a lot of relationships who don't want to be together. Uh, not that I was going to see what's happening here, but it is a possibility out there in the world. And, and to be clear, everything we've seen about Gray and Adira so far suggests that it is a very healthy relationship and that they're not going to see any sort of troubles romantically like Culber and Stamets did. I'm just nonetheless conjecturing about what complications are now possible it's a very it's a unique thing that they barely touched on in star trek before a little bit with like kira's baby or or kira holding keiko's baby and they had that connection a little bit there look this is weird this is awkward and all that kind of stuff so they've touched on it before but now we have an opportunity to really explore it if they ever choose to there are some questions i hope get answered like picard's new body was built to expire eventually, which is the last lesson Data gave him, which is it's the most human thing you can do is die. Uh, will Gray's body age? Will it get old? Will it have super strength? 
these are things I would like to see. They answered some of that last season episode already. Remind me. Uh, Culber, because because uh, through Idira, Gray asked, like, "Will I get old?" and and Culber mentioned, "Like, yeah, this will be basically a normal body." Oh, okay. So no super strength. Uh, nope, nope. Just to say, this almost the exact same conversation they had end up Picard. Like, now you're still gonna get old. And and because Adira made a joke about pot, be, getting a pot belly and everything like that. <laughs> Although I guess we now have the same potential risk we had in season two of a cybernetic crewman getting infected by a virus. Like, w- w- uh, what could happen? I don't think they're gonna go that route. I don't know. I think it'd be kind of neat if. Uh, that ro- robotic race that tried to take over the future from season two manifested itself in gray. And now suddenly Adira has to put gray down because that is another common television trope of having uh, to fight they, your loved ones. Cause they're possessed. And then, they, then if, if it was that group specifically, then they're stuck here. They came to the future for no reason at all. But uh, in general, yes. Um, eh, I don't think that's an interesting story anymore in Star Trek. I don't think it's an interesting story anywhere. Like they did it in a season of She-Ra and I was like, oh, come on, I hate this plot. Why do they, why do so many <laughs> shows do this? Like season six of The Flash did it. I was sick of it then. Come on. Uh, I can't believe this person that I know is possessed is acting this way. I know. Why are they doing this to me personally? I know you're still in there. You have to fight. <laughs> Ugh, I'm tired of these lines, Gabriel. <laughs> um... Any more on the episode before I touch on other things? Uh, two quick acknowledgments of jokes. One is the scene that Burnham and Vance had near the beginning of the episode. And Vance said, oh, you know, like you, you are the first violin and I play the drums. And the president is the conductor. I like that analogy. And and, and uh, Burnham says, that's, a lot, of, that's a, a lot of metaphor in there. And Vance says, well, you know, they pay me by the word. That was so good, too. I lo- the analogy was great. That line was great. The, I like the line because, again, and I've mentioned this before, but I continue to appreciate it, just how far not only Vance has come, but now we're specifically seeing Vance's relationship with Burnham, how far that's come. Because joking with somebody in that way is letting your guard down a bit, and it's letting them see mm-hmm. a different side of you. And Vance is clearly comfortable doing that with Burnham, and that's nice to see. In a way the Federation president has taken on the role that Vance had last season of being somewhat inscrutable and potentially adversarial. Yeah, I totally agree. And that also reminds me of something I forgot to mention last week, which was Stamets made a joke also to Burnham about might as well blow me out an airlock (laughs) because (laughs) too soon. Well, well, in the season finale last year, we saw Stamets kind of give the side eye to Burnham and we suspected that their relationship may have been irreparably harmed. And that we would see that in this season. And we haven't. And in f- the fact that he joked about it suggests to me that he's kind of over it. Yeah, they did some they did some uh, work and things in, in between seasons in those few months. Yeah, there were the five months in between. And also Stamets said to Book, like, you saved my family when I couldn't. And I think the important thing there is that his family was saved. That's the reason he didn't want to be ejected from discovery was because he wanted to go back to the dilithium planet and save Adira and Culber. And in the end, he got what he wanted. He just wasn't the one to do it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's more important to him than any acrimony. He may have bottled up toward Burnham. I got nothing. What's up? All right. So (laughs) 
various things. Um, the interior of the, uh, the Credence, I was bummed that it was just a redress of Discovery's set. Uh, and it, it was a missed opportunity to see some design of future future ships. True. Uh, not, none of these are big deals. There's things in there. Uh, uh, I understand. Money, plot, whatever. Yep. We're in cool. Someone pointed out something really cool I missed is that in the very opening scene when the Credence comes on screen, uh, all in its like 83 warp nacelles or whatever it had, <laughs> um, all the windows are multicolored, not one uniform color. Huh. Something I never realized I didn't notice in Star Trek. Like all the windows are always yellow or blue or white. Here you see greens, orange, blues. I got a screenshot here. I'm like, wow. I didn't notice that, but I now think this should always be what we see on Star Trek. Because they do have different colored lights on inside the ship. Right. Yeah, different things going on. Yeah, so I thought it was a neat little detail that I just never noticed I didn't notice before. One piece of tech that I realized with the transporters, they just be able to pop up in rooms mostly. We no longer get those traditional Star Trek scenes of welcoming or sending someone away on the transporter. I mean, they can have it wherever they're at now, but there was always that little something about it being on the transporter pad. That's true. You'll never have another moment like the moment when Data said goodbye to Tasha Yar's sister. Mm-hmm. I loved that moment. Oh, it was. And yeah. It's like we lost, you know, how in old movies, you used to be able to walk someone up to the gate at the airport to say goodbye. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we, we've just lost something in the badges having the transporter thing i'm not saying it's necessarily a bad thing but i didn't realize i'd miss it until here i had that thought of like oh we don't get those anymore yeah um uh because some of those were really good or the oh no what wacky and zany adventure are we gonna have this week because it's diana's mom on there (laughs) (laughs) there was the deepest cut in this episode that i did not even know was a thing until um, someone brought it up. Uh, that was uh, the Vulcan president asked Book if he wants some red spice. Yes. Tea. So red spice is um, a Vulcan spice, obviously. And um, the one time it's ever been mentioned in Star Trek before was second season DS9 episode Second Sight. And when I say that episode, I don't remember this episode at all. I watched, the, I was like, I got to try to figure out what this episode was. So I watched the trailer from, you know, in the 90s of this episode. I don't remember this episode at all. Uh, it was one where, I do remember now seeing some more of the show, but it was one where Cisco was imagining a girlfriend and they scan her and she doesn't exist. But then they, uh, later in the episode, uh, a human uh, scientist, um, uh, comes on the ship and whoa, there she is, married to him. And they're trying to figure it out, but whatever. This guy is an eccentric scientist. He loves to talk about himself and everything. And in a weird scene, like they actually have the entire senior staff of DS9 on the ship at this little dinner party, which is something you never saw. And Cisco is having a little conversation to Dax privately at this table uh, while everyone's enjoying dinner, talking around dinner. The camera is focused on those two having these conversations. And in the background, our little scientist, who's very eccentric and talking, is just talking in the background. And he mentions Vulcan red spice. And then another list of ingredients. It's the deepest cut. That is extremely (laughs) subtle. 
it was so subtle. And I went on this like 20 minute journey into researching and watching scenes and ro- pulling up the episode to catch this reference. <laughs> like some of the writers here or, you know, the waiting writing room takes a lot of care in trying to find these. It's not the first time we've heard of these deep cuts either. Uh, and so I just got a kick out of that, that they went to so much trouble to do that. And I went to all that trouble to research it. <laughs> the ready room, Will Wheaton had um, Blue and Ian on the episode today. But he said, before we talk to them, there's something I want to say. Because um, one thing he's mentioned before, that he is as old compared to them as Patrick Stewart slash Picard was to Wesley Crusher during that time period. Uh, which is already wow. But he said, and I wrote this out because it was something like, wow. Um, he said about Adira that Adira is everything I ever hoped Wesley Crusher would be. Uh, they are a respected, valued, trusted member of the crew, and they don't take it for granted. And knowing the troubles that Will Wheaton had uh, on TNG, where the cast loved him, but the production crew didn't, um, Kind of, it just—it was really powerful, and I suspect that's why your friend said suggested to watch it. Uh, and I do too. It's—it's it's right away in the first few minutes. Um, it was kind of a powerful moment, and it was really sweet. Cool. Maybe I'll yeah. go back and watch that then. I highly suggest it, even if only for that little bit. But I think the whole Ready Room episode was good. Um, and I have finally taken a breath, and that is all I had to say about the episode. I think I'll wait until after episode four of this season before I go back and watch season three's ready room, because mm-hmm. as you and I discussed off the air, there is a, uh, I consider it a spoiler, a certain character appears next week, and I didn't need to know that ahead of time. Uh, okay, here, I'll ask a question before we go. Do you feel it takes something away from the episode? Or knowing that It's a bit less there? of a surprise. I like being surprised. Okay. I wasn't trying to judge anything. I'm just curious, like, what... I don't know, I get lost. it. Uh, the yeah. element of surprise. <laughs> and what does that leave us? Guile. Anyway. And I would be curious if you feel after the episode, how you feel. Like, do you feel that changed your relationship with the viewing thing? Maybe Always. it's part of a bigger spoiler, non-spoiler thing. But anyway. The, the fact that we're already having this conversation means the timeline has changed. <laughs> uh, lastly, before I let you go, I all discovered this week. and I'm going to give you a link so you can maybe put it in the show notes or whatever like that. A lot of people already know about this, but I somehow completely missed Star Trek Intakes series. Oh, yeah. Ryan's edits. I back him on Patreon. I somehow completely missed these. Actually, I might have think I've seen now that I watched them all. I might have seen one or two and didn't realize it was part of a whole grand thing where they take the the outtakes and then cut them back into the episodes. Um most, like 98% of them are that. Once like once or twice he kind of made his own edit of a voice line. But uh Basically taking all these outtakes and putting them back in as if they were in the episode. And oh my god, it is so funny. They're hilarious to see the characters perform so out of character. <laughs> I, see, what led me to it is because that video I mentioned last week of Captain Archer saying anything, anything, anything. That's was by him. by him. Right. So I was looking more into it and I found these intakes like, oh my god, this is so, so funny. He also <laughs> just released the 12 Days of Star Trek. Nice. Uh, it's a Christmas Carol that he released last year to his Patreon backers as an unlisted video, and now he's publicly published it, and it's <laughs> quite funny. Nice. Instead of That's five cool. golden rings, there are five lights, <laughs> like that. 
awesome. Yeah. So anyway, uh, look look for Star Trek intakes. There's like 93 of them at this moment. So they all like 30 seconds to a minute long. You can. They're amazing. I watched them over the course of a few days. I loved them. And then if you want to like me, you can start throwing that guy a couple bucks every month on Patreon. Yeah. Oh, oh good stuff. Until next time. Uh, punch it. I, I know I had one for this and I forgot about ready, so punch it. <laughs> if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes and keep your hailing frequencies open by following us on Twitter at TransporterLock or subscribing to our podcast and email newsletter at TransporterLock.com. <laughs>